This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So uh, what I'd like to tell you about today is our efforts to get a high temporal and spatial resolution of changes in membranes in the cell. And what we're doing is uh, using electron microscopy with a technique that's called flash and freeze. And the key to this technique is to be able to synchronize the cell at a particular time and then look at events that occur afterward. And so um, we've come up with two methods for synchronizing cellular activity. The first is light stimulation, and the second is electrical stimulation. So I'll tell you about both of those. So the way a synapse works is shown here. I think a lot of you are familiar with that. This is the uh, vision of Bernard Katz. And here's the cell body of the neuron, and an action potential travels down this axon and then invades the bouton, the presynaptic bouton. And what that does is open voltage-gated calcium channels, and calcium channels then open up and cause the fusion of synaptic vesicles filled with neurotransmitter to fuse with the plasma membrane and release those molecules onto ligand-gated ion channels on the postsynaptic surface. And so at the time, this was not uh, believed. Uh, It was thought that these synaptic vesicles that were observed did, in fact, contain neurotransmitter, but they were just uh, storage organelles for um, neurotransmitter. And the reason was that no one had seen these vesicles actually fuse with the plasma membrane after a stimulus, and so it wasn't clear that this part of um, the hypothesis was correct. And it took some 23 years before um, that was proven. And that was proven by the work of, uh, of John Heuser and Tom Reese because they built a really cool instrument called the freeze slammer. And that's what's shown here. So they have a piece of the frog pectoral muscle, which is really thin and can freeze very rapidly. Uh, and then they have um, nerves that are still attached and wrapped around stimulating wires. And these stimulating wires, went, this whole apparatus was attached here to this rod, uh, and the stimulating wires went up and could be connected to a circuit. And so what they could do then was release this uh, solenoid, and then as the bar was following through space, they would calculate five milliseconds before it hit a copper block cooled to four Kelvin, stimulate the motor neurons, which would then cause an action potential, which would then uh, cause the release of neurotransmitter uh, at the neuromuscular junction. And then they could ask whether the vesicles actually fused. And this is the image they got out of that. Absolutely spectacular. So here is a frog neuromuscular junction, which has not been stimulated. You can see that there are vesicles that are docked at that surface. And stimulated and then frozen five milliseconds later, you see these beautiful fusions that are taking place of the synaptic vesicles fusing with the plasma membrane and releasing neurotransmitter. So Katz's quantal and vesicle hypothesis was thereby proved. But uh, Tom and John also recognized that there was another problem. And that is that there was a limited number of synaptic vesicles at a synapse. And so uh, at a neuromuscular junction, maybe there's 300. Uh, And a mouse neuromuscular junction can fire at 100 times a second. So at these rates, you can see that the synaptic vesicles could be rapidly consumed. uh, And then you would exhaust the synapse and it would no longer be functional. 
And so they uh, then were convinced that these synaptic vesicles had to be recycled locally. It would take a week for vesicles to be transported down the axon to replenish uh, a synapse. So there had to be local recycling. And so what they did was they used their freeze slammer once again. uh, And um, now, instead of freezing five milliseconds after stimulation, would freeze one second and then two seconds and 10 seconds, 15 seconds uh, to 30 seconds, and then look at each of those stages and see whether they could see membrane being taken back in. Now, this is a freeze fracture. So what they've done is they've taken their ice block and they've hit it with a wedge on the side. And that ice block will break where the weak parts are. So where are the weak parts? It's where the lipid bilayers are. So there's no covalent bonds between those lipid bilayers. Everything else is frozen and stuck together. So when they strike the block, it splits at the lipid bilayer. They can coat that uh, with an electron-dense material, take those replicas, and put them in the electron microscope. And this is what they saw. At zero milliseconds, that is an unstimulated synapse, you can see these little buttons, and those are likely to be calcium channels. At five milliseconds after stimulation, they could see these indentations, and these are vesicles that are on the other side of the screen, right? We're looking at the face of the synapse. Those are now fusing with the membrane and creating these dimples. Then they looked at one second and, uh, you know, three seconds, ten seconds, and so, uh, so on, and they saw nothing. And it wasn't until 30 seconds that they began to see these proteins would come together and form clusters, and then they would be pulled inside. So you see these little dips. This one in particular is beautiful because you can see the neck um, where it broke off because, of course, you can't break into that um, concave surface. When they looked at uh, cross-sections, they saw that these invaginations were coated with this electron-dense material, uh, and it had been seen before. This is clathrin. And so uh, they now um, were able to say that at synapses, after stimulation, that vesicles or membranes uh, from that are lost to the plasma membrane are recycled via this clathrin-mediated process, and the process is rather slow. It takes about 30 seconds. So we have revisited those experiments, and I think we see another process that's occurring. Uh, we call this ultra-fast endocytosis, and in this case, we see that the membrane is removed from the surface between 50 to 300 milliseconds in a mouse neuron. Uh, this then generates a synaptic endosome within one second. These are butted by clathrin into mature synaptic vesicles that can be refilled and reused in five seconds. So the process that we're observing is much faster than what uh, had been observed by Heuser and Rees. So uh, the ex- when we started these experiments, we needed to, uh, the way to replicate the freeze slammer. We needed to freeze the samples uh, as quickly as possible. And it needed to be deep because the first uh, organism that we did this in was C. elegans. And so it's uh, 80 to 100 microns thick. So we needed to have a frozen sample all the way through. So the way the high-pressure freezer works, it goes from 1 to 2,000 atmospheres in 15 milliseconds. So the water molecules are vibrating around, but under high pressure, they become sluggish. And if you can drop the temperature fast enough, then you don't have time for those molecules to reorder themselves and then uh, generate ice crystals. Ice crystals will shred your cells, so there will be no morphology left. And so by doing this, um, we're able to freeze the sample without any distortions from ice crystals. So 
uh, we're doing this, the, the experiments I'm going to show you here are not done in uh, C. elegans, in the nematode. They're done in cultured hippocampal neurons. Uh, and so now what we need to do is we have these in the high-pressure chamber, but we need some way to initiate a depolarization that will then initiate that action potential and then stimulate this synapse so that we can look for vesicle fusions and endocytosis at that synapse. And the way we're doing that is with channel rhodopsin. So channel rhodopsin uh, is a light-activated ion channel. Uh, so um, when you stimulate it with 470 nanometer uh, light, you can then open that channel, and sodium will flow into that neuron and then cause an action potential. So we now have a way to stimulate an action potential in a neuron that's deep inside this high-pressure chamber. So let me just show you that this actually works. Uh, here is a neuron that's expressing channel rhodopsin. This is an on-cell configuration. Uh, we stimulate with light, and here is the light stimulus. It's 10 milliseconds long, and you can see these beautiful action potentials that are occurring during the light stimulus. Usually there's just one, but in this case we see that there are two action potentials occurring. We can then move that pipette to a uh, postsynaptic neuron that is not expressing channel rhodopsin, so it will not be stimulated by light, um, but it will receive inputs from this neuron. So we flash the light, that um, now uh, fires an action potential, and what we can see are these postsynaptic currents. These are synaptic currents, they're beautiful, uh, and you can see in this case we also had two action potentials uh, that were leading to this postsynaptic current. So then we now have uh, a neuron that's expressing channel rhodopsin in our high-pressure chamber, uh, but we need to get a light path into that chamber. And so uh, we modified the, uh, the Leica high-pressure freezer at the time, uh, and so it is composed of this structure here. So here's the specimen cup. That's where our uh, neurons are going to go, and it's held in place by a bayonet. Uh, and this bayonet will then fire down a rail into the high-pressure chamber. The chamber will close, and then uh, it fires uh, and freezes the sample. So what we did was, uh, we, there's, here's this little cup that holds the neurons. There's a black diamond anvil here, um, and the pressure comes here and slams that against that black diamond anvil and creates 2,000 atmospheres. Liquid nitrogen flows around on either side to freeze the sample. So what we did was we replaced that sapphire anvil, the black anvil with a sapphire anvil. Uh, we then drilled out that mounting screw and we drilled out uh, the bayonet so that we had an LED right at this point and now we have a light path to the sample. So the experiment now is quite simple. We're going to provide a 10 millisecond light stimulus and then we'll freeze at 15 milliseconds, 30 milliseconds, 50 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds, 300 milliseconds, etc. And um, these were the first images we got, and we were extremely excited by these because they're just beautiful. So if we freeze 15 milliseconds after the stimulation, we see vesicles fusing with the plasma membrane. It's just, isn't that beautiful? It's collapsing into the membrane. Here at 30 milliseconds, almost fully collapsed into the membrane. So we can capture those very rapid events caused by an action potential causing vesicles to fuse. So what about recycling, right? Remember, it took 30 seconds in the Heuser and Reese experiments. And we came up, we saw he had a huge surprise when we saw that uh, recycling of the membrane was occurring uh, on the scale of 100 milliseconds. So here's the active zone. That's where vesicles are fusing. Uh, and at the lateral edge, at 50 milliseconds, you can already see this invagination that's building. 
At 100 milliseconds, it's much deeper. In this one, you can actually see some electron-dense material. The membrane is being cut from the surface, so that is the act of endocytosis. Uh, and then at 300 milliseconds, you can see that the vesicle has been completely cleaved from the membrane. So uh, we can now calculate the time during which endocytosis is taking place, uh, and that is seen by, uh, by quantifying the number of each of these structures we see. Uh, we see the first pits at 30 milliseconds. Uh, then we see um, large vesicles form at 50 milliseconds. We see the last pits forming at 300 milliseconds. And so that determines the first presence of vesicles and the last presence of the appearance of vesicles. So endocytosis is taking place between 50 to 300 milliseconds. So this is a tomogram, uh, and it's really an important image. So I want to spend a minute on it. So what we've done here is done a tilt, a tilt series uh, and reconstructed the electron densities inside that thick section. And uh, we have now drawn this membrane, the presynaptic membrane, slightly transparent. You can see the postsynaptic density, which is shown in red, uh, through that membrane. And so that defines um, where the synaptic vesicles are being released and where the receptors are on the other side. In this synapse, you can see that there are three synaptic vesicles fusing at this point in this active zone. Look here. Already, you can see these invaginations that are taking place at the lateral edge of the synapse. This means that the membrane that is in the synaptic vesicle and is fusing is not the same membrane that is being taken up by ultrafast endocytosis. Here at 100 milliseconds, the, uh, there's the, the fusions have fully collapsed into the membrane. Uh, here's one of those shallow invaginations, and here's one that's being cleaved from the surface, the act of endocytosis. So we're able to then follow what happens to this membrane later. Uh, and what you can see is that it is transported to the back of the synapse, and it makes these large synaptic endosomes shown here. And then this synaptic endosome is then cut apart by a clathrin into individual synaptic vesicles. And here is a 3D view of that. Uh, and if we just focus on one of these um, buds, uh, when you just look at the densities, you can see that, in fact, there's a clathrin uh, geodesic dome or buckyball forming around one of these vesicles. So uh, that was great. We have, were able to see this new process called ultrafast endocytosis. Um, but it came under a lot of criticism, uh, and I, I think it's it valid it's, it's, if you're trying to make a major claim here. One of our reviewers said that there are 40 years of experiments uh, that suggest that um, clathrin-mediated endocytosis is the mechanism by which synaptic vesicles are recycled. Uh, and um, there's probably 10,000 papers, and now there's one paper that says it's not the way it works. So one of the, the major thing people were focusing on is that we were seeing four synaptic vesicle equivalents being endocytosed. And so why, and it would, the dogma is that there's only one vesicle fusing. There are people who think that that's not true, that they're multivesicular release, but nevertheless, that's uh, how people imagine the synapse works. And they all hinged on the fact that we were using channel rhodopsin instead of electrical stimulation, which is what everybody else uses. And so, and I actually have to thank my um, critics because they were relentless, um, but they're well-meaning because all of these cri uh, criticisms were told to my face at meetings, and they said, you got to figure this out. And so the ideas were that there was an excess depolarization by channel rhodopsin. That's possible. 
Uh, there was increased membrane fluidity by channel rhodopsin, uh, but also possible. Uh, and that there was calcium influx by channel rhodopsin as well, and that was leading to these greater responses in this unusual form of endocytosis. So the solution is obvious. Come up with a way to stimulate these samples electrically, and we call this zap and freeze. So... And I have to give credit to my uh, senior research fellow who came up with this, Wayne Davis. He said, this is what your middle plate looks like in the, in the center of that high pressure chamber. And the sample is held right here. And so the light comes in and stimulates that sample and causes the neurons to fire action potentials. So he said, why don't you just move the uh, sample holder, the sample cup, to this lateral position, add uh, stimulating leads, uh, add capacitors that will c carry a charge, and then add a light-activated switch so that when uh, you now take this, insert it into the high-pressure chamber, the light will stimulate that switch and then cause a depolarization of the cells in your sample uh, and cause action potentials. And so this is what we did. This is what this thing looks like. It is an independent little circuit board that fits deep into the high-pressure chamber. Uh, you can see the capacitors here, and here is where our specimens go, and then the leads are on either side. And so these are the images, the first images that came from this device. Uh, here is an unstimulated sample, and then here is a stimulated sample. This is one action potential at 1.2 millimolar calcium, so this is physiological. And you can see that there are three vesicles that have fused with the membrane and are collapsing into the plasma membrane. So this is frozen after a single stimulus and frozen 11 milliseconds after the pulse. So what about ultrafast endocytosis? So now what we've done is we stimulate once, it's a one millisecond pulse, and then we freeze 100 milliseconds later. And now again, here's the active zone, postsynaptic density is marked here. And here is an invagination, here is an invagination, here is an invagination, and here's another invagination at the lateral ledge, edge of the uh, active zone, once again showing that ultrafast endocytosis takes place even with electrical stimulation. So uh, here's the quantitation of that. Uh, here's an unstimulated sample, and here is a sample stimulated 100 milliseconds earlier, and we see the presence of these endocytic pits and endocytic vesicles. So it looks like ultrafast endocytosis takes place along with, uh, um, well, we'll see uh, uh, when uh, clathrin-mediated endocytosis occurs, but we see these very fast responses that disagree with what people have been seeing in hippocampal neurons. So the issue is, why do our results differ from those who have been imaging uh, uh, hippocampal neurons in the past? And I think we know the answer now, and the answer is temperature. So we did all of our experiments at either 34 degrees, because that's where electrophysiologists uh, like to record, or 37 degrees, which is physiological for the mouse. And when we do that, we see these large endocytic vesicles forming, uh, and we see ultrafast endocytosis. When Shigeki did his experiments at 22 degrees, you now see that clathrin-mediated endocytosis takes over. So you can see a clathrin coat there. Here's an, here's an enlargement of that beautiful clathrin coat. So what we think is going on is at 34 degrees, we see normal. Uh, we see ultrafast uh, endocytosis. And then uh, at 22 degrees, we see uh, clathrin-coated pits and clathrin-mediated endocytosis. 
So in conclusion, we think that uh, at normally uh, we have ultra-fast endocytosis, removing membrane from the surface after action potentials, and then in the absence of ultra-fast endocytosis, there's an emergency backup system, which is clathrin-mediated endocytosis. And with that, I would just like to thank uh, the people who did the work. All of the electron microscopy was done by Shigeki Watanabe, who has his own lab now at Johns Hopkins. Instrumentation was from Wayne Davis. I'd really like to thank the people at Leica, particularly Tsveta Tomova. They provided us with every one of their instruments every summer at MBL, and they would say, do whatever you want to it. We just need to take a picture of it at the end of the summer. And so I have no financial interest in Leica. Uh, we turned over all intellectual property to Leica, and so these things are now available commercially, and you can use them. And then finally, my host in Berlin, uh, Christian Rosemann. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.